Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran. Padre Gautuma and I began this project in 2011. Nine people, 10 minutes to tell a true story. But it wasn't until 2017 that we started recording our live events. Some of those recordings we thought had been lost, but no, they've turned up. So watch out for some blasts from the past over the coming weeks and months. All stories never before heard outside a live 10 by 9 So here are three stories from March 22nd, 2017, recorded in the Black Box in Belfast. Tonight our theme, secrets and lies, and everything you say in this room can and will be used against you. When I was about eight, my parents came home with a brand new video recorder, and I was very, very excited because everybody else that I knew had a video recorder. This thing looked like a large cassette player because you pressed big buttons and something popped up. It was a Betamax video, which meant that I couldn't borrow a VHS video from anybody else. And we were told this lengthy, lengthy story about a man in Dad's work who had to go to America and he had just bought the video and he wanted to find a trustable family, this is us, to look after this video recorder. And we had to be very careful and it would be best if we didn't tell too many people about the video recorder that we had borrowed from the man who had gone to America. And every month, I'd say, I, with great fear, like, is the man coming back from America yet? Is he coming back from America yet? And I believed this. And then eventually, when I was about 17, my parents bought an actual VHS. And that was all very exciting. And so I'm 42 this year. And I'd say about five years ago, I mentioned that story to my sister. And she said, you know that that man didn't exist. (laughs) My parents didn't want their brothers and sisters thinking, who are those people buying a video player? And it was an awful piece of shite. And so that video player was this big secret of life because my parents didn't want to seem to be flahool in front of their brothers and sisters. Any of you who know what flahool means, a little bit too generous with things, with themselves especially. So, welcome to Secrets and Lies. If you ever meet my mother, you're not allowed to tell her that because recently my mother was up visiting and somebody from 10 by 9 met her and said, I know so many stories about you. And my mother went, really? But she was a bit bewildered and I just moved her on. So, welcome to 10 by 9. I met Pipe in a pub in Donegal Town. He was sitting quietly at the bar, paying his respects to his pint. When I asked the barman if he knew where I could find a room, he said, Ask Pipe. And Pipe smiled and speaking in a little rush, threw a slight stammer, excited at the prospect of being helpful, said I should go and talk to Jimmy Meehan, the postmaster in Mount Charles, for he had rooms in a house at the lower end of the town. And the next time I saw Pipe, he was coming up the stairs, aglow, and he said, Ah, I thought I might see you here. Each of us had a room and a little kitchen at opposite ends of the landing and shared the bathroom. A Donegal winter was approaching, and we'd little money. When we had money, we would walk up the hill to the hotel in the evening and sit over half a pint each and share stories and comment on the world around us. And sometimes, if we were lucky, someone else would come along and buy us another pint and help us make more of the night. Pipe's big secret, or lie, I think a lie, was that he was an IRA man on the run. He didn't look like an IRA man, 
The fashion among them at the time was moustache and denims. This was 1981, and he was 30 years older than Bobby Sands. Pipe was gentle-natured. I never saw him angry, not caustically, cynically angry anyway. He was sensual. He loved that pipe and his drink, and I've known few people who enjoyed a drink as much, who were genuinely happier and more relaxed when they'd a couple down them. I've seen people turn surly and drink, but I can't think of anyone else who was made simply seraphic by a pint of Guinness. He told me in time that he'd served a sentence in Port Leisha prison, though he didn't tell me what for or for how long. He hinted at a life on the border among IRA members smuggling weapons and carrying out attacks. I let him know that I'd no respect for that carry-on, and instead of arguing, we just talked about other things. Occasionally other pub Republicans would join us. One was Cheap Tom. He threw out a question to us about military resources, us being men who knew the North. If the IRA and the Brits just fought it out in a clean battle, he said. You see, people had been saying their sneak attacks were cowardly and they weren't real soldiers in uniform. If the IRA and the Brits just fought it out in a clean battle, he said, which do you think would win? That tells you how sus those guys were. I said, well, 600 IRA, most of them in prison, 20,000 armed Brits, and for backup if needed, the RAF. Give me that pencil and I'll see if I can work it out. <laughs> One day I called at Pipe's door and got no answer. Next time I saw him with his trousers pulled on over his pyjamas at three o'clock in the afternoon. He'd times when he shut himself away. I said I needed his help to gather driftwood off the beach for the fire and that I'd split it with him. And that is how we got through that winter, taking my Vespa down to the beach, filling sacks with bits of driftwood, lashing the sacks across the back of the Vespa and bringing them back, wobbling up the hill and sawing the bits in the yard. We found great wood, occasionally a railway sleeper. We broke up an old boat. That kept us fit and cosy for weeks. Sometimes just hauling up the wood warmed us up so much we didn't need a fire. And this work put Pipe out of his bed. Sometimes he had visits from his sons from Straban who'd take us for a drink. About once a month his wife would come and change his sheets and bring him clean clothes and give off to him about his slovenly ways. And over Guinness he told me more about his past. He had been a seminary boy and had gone over the wall and hitchhiked home. But mostly we talked about the people of the town, the house fires, the suicides, the rumours about affairs, the secrets and lies of other people. I left Mount Charles after my second winter, but visiting again a year later I heard that Pipe had been ill. I found him in Castle Finn where the council had provided him with a little bungalow. He told me that the doctor had sent him to Sligo Hospital for an angiogram. There being no ambulance to take him, a taxi had been ordered, and on the way he'd got the driver to stop at a pub for a wee nip. Maybe his last. He loved recounting his own mischief. There was an election that year, and he laughed about all the different parties writing to him to take credit for getting him his wee house. Years later, I was to marry a woman from Straban, and I chanced disclosing the company I kept to her father. He was a retired school principal, and I asked him if he knew Pipe. Pat Boyle, you see, was one of those men who knew everyone in the county and how they were related to each other. Pipe, he said. 
Do you know how he got that name? I suppose it was because he smokes a pipe. Devil a bit. Pat told me that how one day his school sewage pipe had been bombed by the IRA, splashing smelly filth all over a field. Pipe had got the credit for that operation. His only known blow for Irish freedom was disabling the toilets in a primary school. <laughs> and this was memorialised in the nickname he had borne since. Who knows what the truth is behind that? Whether he'd really done the job himself, what the intention behind it was, whether he'd ever done much worse, perhaps he had. But he did not carry himself like a man with a troubled conscience, but indeed more like someone who was relieved that life was so simple for him. Pipe had enjoyed being known as an IRA ex-prisoner, though I suspect, and my father-in-law did too, that he was really on the run from a life that didn't suit him. A couple of years ago, I heard that he was back in a nursing home in Straban, so he'd felt it was safe to come home after all. Perhaps he'd got his OTR letter. I called there to see him. He was in his late 50s when I first met him, younger than I am myself now, but now he was in his 80s and more frail. He still had that wee glow, the mischievous contentment of someone who looks as if he's enjoying a big secret and who is, essentially, happy. I think if he had a secret worth knowing, it was how a person can be content with so little. Perhaps that chuffed look about him is how a man is when he's done something dreadful and got away with it, or when he's nearly done something dreadful and failed and escaped the danger of a long prison sentence and a burdened conscience. Maybe that kind of man wakes up every morning feeling pleased with himself, having escaped some dark destiny by a mere miracle. Last month I heard that Pipe had died and that he was being waked at his daughter's house in Straban. His son, whom I hadn't seen for 35 years, received me at the door as an old friend. I was introduced to sisters and neighbours, then led upstairs to a small room about the size of those we'd had in the lower end, though this house was different. It was bright and fresh, its atmosphere and decor were the creation of a diligent homemaker. We would not have been allowed in here with our sacks of driftwood. Pipe didn't look like himself in the coffin, with the rosary beads entwined through his fingers, his thinner hair combed and plastered flat. Gone was the life of him, and that knowing look of someone who had enjoyed his secrets, whatever they were. So, first timer, round of applause please for Jane Searle. It all started when I found this crucifix. It was in an old shoebox along with letters and photos from the 1960s, wrapped carefully in tissue paper, hidden away at the back of the cupboard in my granddad John's bedroom. He had died in 1975, but his room had stayed much the same. I came down the stairs with my discovery. What's this? I asked my auntie Letty, holding up the ancient relic. Every Sunday I drove to Enniskillen to visit her, my elderly aunt Letitia, Letty for short, my mother's only sister and the last of the family still alive. She was 80 and unable to get out. Chronic arthritis had left her twisted with pain, but she still had all her marbles. What are you doing with that? She snapped, 
And then, like a child who's just been discovered caught in a lie, she began to gabble her words. It's a secret. We don't talk about it. Now put the box back upstairs. I wasn't going to do that. I had always been interested in finding out about the family. So I picked up the scab. Was Grandpa John a Catholic? I asked. Auntie Letty breathed in deeply. And then relieved to have to keep the secret no more, the words came tumbling out. He was, but it was a secret. Your daddy never knew, or he would never have married your mother, the daughter of a mixed marriage. Anyway, we don't keep in touch with the ones in Derry. They ran here after your granddad died, but I put the phone down all week. <laughs> now, finding out something like this today is not like finding it out in 1975. I'd like to think that we've moved on a bit from imagining that mixed marriages are the devil's doing. But then my grandparents met and fell in love in 1920. John Campbell was born in Wellington Street in Derry, stroke Londonderry, in 1896 the eldest boy in a family of 16 children. They lived in a small terrace house in the middle of the bogside, crammed in like brooms in a cupboard. Mornings saw them all tumble out onto the streets with a piece and a swig of tea, half-mast trousers and mischief on their mind. They were poor, but they were loved. John dreamt of emigrating to America, but when he was 17, his father was killed in an accident and he had to become the head of the family. The actual words on his father's death certificate read, cause of death, found dead in a field from overdose of the grog. <laughs> My great-grandfather had been in the field next to the brewery trying to siphon off some of his beloved drink. Whether the overdose of booze or the cold or the combination of the two had done for him, it was irrefutable that it was the drink what done him in. Now that's something you keep secret when your daughter brings home a respectable young Presbyterian boy years later. John had to get a job, and there were precious few of those in 1914. It was wartime, and so he enlisted in the Inniskillen Fusiliers. He fought in Gallipoli and in the trenches in France. Years later, when I was a young girl, I remember him showing me his wounds, purple dips in his skin that I could put my finger in. My gentle granda, who had never wanted to be a machine gunner, had carried out the gut-wrenching tasks required of him in battle until shrapnel got him on a boat home. And it was after the war, while walking to the bedding office in Inniskillen, that he met my granny Lily. He always said of her that she was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen, skin creamy white and jet black hair. The two of them just had to be with each other. Lily was a Protestant and from a strict family. Her parents were not intolerant of the Catholic religion, but her older brothers were, and they had no time for the other side. Rough boys who liked to look after their sister, Lily had to sneak around if she wanted to spend time with John. They had secret walks and trips to the pictures, but they both knew that if they wanted to be together, they had to choose a side. Lily chose John's and they eloped to Derry, where they got married in the chapel. His family were all there, but none of Lily's. She loved him that much. She had run from everyone and everything that was her life in Inniskillen, and it might as well have been another land that she had fled to, for even if tensions had mellowed with time, there was neither the money nor the easy transport to get back to Fermanagh. Lily and John moved in with the Campbell clan. It was 1924, 
John's mother, also called Letitia, did her best to welcome Lily into the family, but the adjustment was huge. Sixteen children, many of whom still lived at home, not much money and even less space. Lily soon became pregnant and in 1925 my mother Molly was born. Lily never settled in Derry. One day she took Molly to the shops with John's sister Mary Bridget. Leaving Mary B outside to watch the pram, she went into the grocer's and out through the back door. She took the first train to Inniskillen and she left John behind. Mary Bridget waited for over an hour outside, but when she realised what had happened, she rushed back to Wellington Street, where my grandma was up a ladder, whitewashing the front of the house. When he saw her with the empty pram, he slid down, his face ashen with shock. But he followed her, and he left his side behind. Moving in with his fa her family, he had to accept the leaving of his. That was just the way it had to be. Lily's brothers accepted him, but on their terms, and that meant never mentioning his background. So he never did. The shoebox in his cupboard was his secret. Full of letters he wrote to his brothers over the years. The crucifix that was on the wall above his mother's bed. It contained his past. Lily, my mother, and the other three children he would go on to have with her became his future. In 2015, when I visit, visited my Aunt Letty, there was a letter from Derry in her pile of bills and Denmark catalogues. It was an invitation to a reunion of the Campbells. What's this? I asked her tentatively. I'm not interested, she replied, but it was significant that she had not thrown it away. Would you mind if I went? I asked. Whatever you like yourself, she replied. It was as close to her blessing as I was going to get. The Campbell reunion took place in the Maldron Hotel by the city walls in Derry. Descendants of my grandma John's brothers and sisters had come from all over the world to be there. My sister and I were the only Protestants, but there was no doubt that these people were our family. Shared loves came out, poetry, writing, football, commitment to faith, humour, and they all knew about Uncle John, my grandpa. He was like a loss that had been passed down through the generations. They had been hurt not to know about his death until after his funeral, but they had forgiven my mum and her brothers and sister for that long ago. It was so out of character of my wonderful mother that I still don't understand that decision. I must assume that in 1975, in the midst of the troubles, she didn't feel able to share the secret. John and Lily stayed together until her death at the age of 63. My grandson never talked about her without tears in his eyes. I wear the wedding ring he gave her when they made their commitment to each other in the chapel in Derry. This ring cost so much. It not only took his savings at a time when money was in very short supply, but for John Campbell, it cost him his family. Last summer, my Aunt Letty died, but the secret didn't die with her. I think both my granda and my mum will be glad about that. Goodness me, what do you say? Uh, Jane, a first time, fantastic. Look forward to your second. There's more about Jane's grandparents, including photos on the BBC Northern Ireland website if you Google bbc.co.uk and Jane Searle. 
And Jane did become a regular storyteller at 10 by 9. In fact, her whole family has been up to the podium at various times. Now, our third story on Secrets and Lies comes from another 10 by 9 favourite, Richard O'Leary. Apologies for the quality of the recording at the beginning, but bear with as the problem disappears about a minute in and the story is a beaut. There's an old saying that goes, you take your secrets to the grave. This saying about secrets I've experienced to be true. But I've also discovered that when someone dies, secrets can be unearthed and lies can be exposed. My mum's death in 2002 brought me back to Cork, to the family home. It took me into my mum's bedroom and to the cardboard box containing her personal papers. There, inside that folder, was mum's collection of devotional prayers. Her prayers to St. Jude for hopeless cases. Hopeless cases like me. And there was a pile of letters tied together by a string. Letters from the late 1980s written to my mum from me. I was very close to my mum. My brother used to tease us and call me MFS, Mother's Favourite Son. I told my mum everything. Well, almost everything. She was the first person I told that I was going to quit my permanent pensionable job in the civil service. I was so honest with my mum that I even told her I no longer attended church. Unlike my brother, who on a Sunday morning preferred to lie to her about it. However, I didn't tell my mum my big secret. In the summer of 1989, I was living as a student in London. Every fortnight, I wrote a letter to my mum. What I didn't tell her was that a few months earlier, I had met someone in Belfast. I had met Mervyn. We had fallen madly and hopelessly in love. It was wonderful. We shared interests, sense of humour, great sex. Now, it was June and he was still in Belfast and I had gone to London. That summer in London without Mervyn was unbearable. It was then that Mervyn proposed. No, not a marriage proposal. This is 1989 in Belfast, for God's sake. <laughs> we were barely legal. <laughs> Mervyn proposed that we go to the continent, to France, for a month. He would use all his working leave and he would take his car on the ferry to France. I thought this was a great idea. We could be together every day for the entire month. A place where no one would know us, and we could hold hands in public without getting beaten up. We'd heard France was quite liberal about that sort of thing. There was only one problem. What would I tell my mum? She'd be anxious if she didn't hear from me for a whole month. She'd be expecting at least a letter or two from London. I didn't want to lie to my mum. I knew that if you lied, and the lie is exposed, the relationship is broken, and the trust may never be re-established. But what reason could I give to my mum for leaving London at a few days' notice and being able to afford to go to the continent for a whole month? 
lying to those we are closest to is the most difficult of all. We feel so wretched about being dishonest with those we love that we compensate, overcompensate, by telling them even more convoluted stories, even more fantastic lies. I sat down to write to my mum this letter. Mrs. O'Leary, Lee Road, Cork, Ireland. You can see the postmark, 22nd of June, 1989. For my address, which was 79 Trevelyan Road, Tooting, London. Dear man, I trust everything is okay at home. Maybe you've replied to my last letter, but in any case, I have some more news. I have a job for July. Although I didn't intend taking full-time employment because I wanted to concentrate on my MA dissertation, it is very expensive to live here in London. And the job centre, where all unemployed people have to register, have offered me work. On an unemployment registration form, I had suggested I was looking for work in the travel business. And unexpectedly, I have been offered a month's work at short notice as a tour guide. <laughs> now audience, maybe you're thinking of a rep for Club Med, but remember, this is my mum I'm writing to, a devout conservative Irish Catholic mother. I continue my letter. The tour is a pilgrimage <laughs> open brackets, Christian close brackets, to the shrine of St. James in the city of Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. The route is through France. I have my expenses plus pay and return. The work experience will be another job to add to my CV and I may even enjoy myself. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing your news, love, Richard. I posted a letter to my mum. I was feeling very pleased with myself. I was going to get to spend a month in France with my new boyfriend, and I hadn't upset my mum. Indeed, she would be relieved that I had a job, and delighted that I would be working for a company specialising in religious jobs. <laughs> However, meticulous as always, I did do a bit of research to cover my tracks. I bought a copy of a booklet called the Pilgrim Guide to Spain, 1989. This booklet told me the basics, the minimum I needed to know about the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, in the unlikely event that mum might ever ask me to tell her about my summer job. The summer job as a religious tour guide, I did not have that summer. That summer, I spent a joyous holiday in France with Mervyn. By the end of the year, I was back living in Belfast with Mervyn. At Christmas 1989, I returned to Cork to visit my mum. In Cork, I was surprised to learn that in that same year of 1989, one of Ireland's best-known broadcasters, named Donoka O'Dooley, had undertaken a pilgrimage walk on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. <laughs> Donica O'Dooley had even made a program about it, <laughs> shown on RTE television, <laughs> such that 
everyone in Cork now even knew more than I did <laughs> about the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. From then on, whenever there was a mention of the Camino, my mum would say to me, you did that pilgrimage to Santiago, didn't you? I'd reply awkwardly, and I'd steal myself for a repeat telling to her of the lie I wrote in that letter. My boyfriend Mervyn became my life partner. How could I, MFS, mother's favourite son, tell mum the truth about my other love? Up to her death in 2002, I never did tell my mum my big secret. This coming Sunday is Mother's Day, and now I have something to tell my mum. Mum, I'm sorry I had to lie to you. I suppose by now you know my big secret. Thank you so much, Richard. That was just wonderful. wonderful.